BET is the global meeting place for the education community. A trusted brand with more than 30 years of heritage, the BET series promotes the discovery of knowledge and technology to enhance lifelong learning. You realise that once you stand out from the others, you are likely to meet obstacles and challenges. You are likely to meet people who will bring you down. People will make you feel like, no, this is not going to work. But if you begin with the end in mind, that before you begin anything, look at the end product. What do you want to achieve? Then you'll stay on course, no matter the challenges, no matter the obstacles. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this next episode from our What Matters in EdTech series, this time with a focus on all things global and co-curated as ever by our friends at BET. A big shout out also to Teacher Lee for supporting this episode and to Sam Wheeler for leading on interviews while I grapple with my quarantini baby. This series is all about the things that matter in education and how and when tech might help. And this episode chats to people working in the Middle East and Africa region. We'd love to hear from you. Tweet us using the hashtag EdTechPodcast and Bet me. Thank you so much. Um, what do you love most about the Britain, the UK, and what do you love most about Oman? Um, I think I'll, I'll give you three three things for each country. Okay. Um, I love the green hills of the UK uh, because I love walking and running in the outdoors. And once you've lived in a dry country for nine years, you, you really start to appreciate the, the greenery. And I know there's a price that comes with that, i.e. lots of rain. Uh, but one is the green hills and the walking. Secondly, um, I miss fish and chips. Uh, and thirdly, thirdly, I miss the British sense of humour. Um, with Oman, um, I love the mountains here, the mountains, the deserts, the wadis, the coastline, absolutely stunning. Um, I really find the culture and the history fascinating. And thirdly, the Omani hospitality is just wonderful. The Omani people are a very peaceful and kind uh, set of people. And they are very proud, quite rightly, of Omani hospitality. Because wherever you go in Oman, they are incredibly friendly and warm and receptive. And they'll invite you into their house for for coffee and dates. They're a lovely, generous-hearted people. Kai Vacher is the principal of the British School in Muscat. I was kindly introduced to him via the Council of British International Schools when prepping for this episode. Here he speaks to Sam about his work and making the move to Amman. Um, I've been the principal here for nine years. Uh, before that, I worked for a large educational improvement organisation called the Specialist Schools and Academies Trust in the UK. I worked there for nine years. Uh, I was director of innovation. Uh, so some listeners might remember from that time in the UK, I spent a lot of time uh, visiting and working with schools with uh, school teachers with head teachers across the UK uh, doing a lot of work on personalization in particular 
back in the uh, noughties in particular. Um, and before that, um, I was a geography teacher um, in two state schools in the UK. Uh, first of all, in East Sussex and then in West Sussex. So I've been out here in Amman now for nine years um, and it's been a, a fantastic experience. To ask, I how did that transition occur? What um, what made you move and set up um, set up a career over in Amal? Um, well, I've been out of school for nine years. Um, towards the end of my time at SSAT, as it's now called, and as I've said, I was, I was doing a huge amount of work of school improvement work um, with teachers and head teachers, um, and particularly with head teachers, I always felt a little bit vulnerable because I was trying to encourage and support head teachers to be innovative uh, with their schools. But having not been a head teacher at that point, I always felt that was part of me. That was uh, that, that something I, I, as, thing, as, as time went on during SSAT, I really felt I, I wanted to, to lead a school. And during that time, I saw very many different ways of how head teachers led schools. Uh, and I think uh, that really gave me the confidence that you, know, you didn't have to lead in a particular way and you could very much lead in a way that suited your experience and your personality and your leadership styles. Um, so by the time I was coming towards the end of my work at the SAT, that experience of working with a wide range of schools across the UK that really gave me an increased level of confidence where I felt I could take on the leadership of my own school um, and at the time I was concerned about the direction of education uh, the direction of education was going in the UK um, and I was also getting a bit fed up with the, with the winters in the UK uh, and so the opportunity to 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 work abroad had been something I'd, I'd thought about for a long time, uh, but you can always make excuses for not doing it because uh, there, there are aspects of it which can seem quite scary. Uh, so um, by the time I got to the end of my work with the SAT, I thought, well, if I don't lead a school now and if I don't make the leap to lead a school internationally, uh, time's going to run out. So I thought now's the time to make that leap. That's fantastic. Very brave of you as well. And can you just tell us a little bit more and describe the British School of Muscat where you are now and principal at? The students, yeah. the ethos, opportunities, the challenges, give us a, a real feel for it. Yeah. Um, BSM, as we call it, is a well-established, uh, not-for-profit British international school uh, in Oman. Uh, very shortly, we'll be celebrating our 50 years so uh, for an international school, that, that is, is quite some time. And um, we do teach the English National Curriculum. We teach GCSEs and A-levels. So if you transported any teacher from the UK into our school, into a classroom, uh, they would have no problem with the curriculum and the way in which we teach. So you know, we are, in that sense, in terms of curriculum and pedagogy, we are very... British in approach. Um, in terms of the students, uh, we have nearly 1,300 students uh, and they come from nearly 70 different countries. 
uh, about 40% of them are British. So while it has a British feel to it, it's also very international. And the ethos, you know, there is a strong international dimension to the work we do, just simply because of the, the range of countries from which the children uh, come from. Um, that, that brings a real richness to, to their experience there. And um, they are also very engaged in their learning. Um, a lot of them have moved around the world. So this might be their third or fourth international experience. So I think when, when staff come from the UK, one of the things they notice, first of all, about students is how engaged they are in their learning. Secondly, a lot of our students do possess a global outlook. You know, they've had experience of living in a range of countries quite often, and that gives them a, a real international perspective, which you might not get if, you, if you're working in the school in England. Um, and I think because of that, they also tend to have a flexible mindset, you know, because they've perhaps had to experience a change of school, a change of location every few years for some of them. They, they have a flexible mindset and they're, they're very good at adapting to a rapidly changing world. Um, and I think the thing I'm most proud of is when, when uh, visitors come to the school, they very often talk about how kind, how generous, and how quietly confident our students are. They are an absolute joy to work with. I love how you refer to the students as having a flexible mindset. And I suppose, well, first of all, in this COVID current situation that we're in, but also I suppose when you think about the tools and the different ways of learning and um, changes within school, that's a really good place for them to be, isn't it? And I, I can imagine educational technology fitting really well within that with the school and using those tools and getting the students to, to have a play and, and getting the most out of it. Yep, yep. Um, that's right. And I think, you know, when, when we, we look ahead to the world that we're preparing our students for uh, and, and we think about what that world might be like, um, then you know, a big part of what we call our, our BSM learning ethos, and we, we, we've explicitly defined what that ethos is over the last few years, working with our staff, um, and, and we really focus on, on three things to, to try to nurture and develop in our students. First of all, that they become secure individuals, you know, they do feel safe, they feel secure, they feel confident where, wherever they are, that's our number one aim. The second bit is uh, we want them to be resourceful learners. So yes, we do want them to be flexible and resilient and adaptable and whatever challenges or opportunities are, are thrown at them either at school or in the future, that they feel they have the confidence and resourcefulness, resilience to, to embrace those challenges and opportunities. And the third part of our learning ethos is that we encourage our students to be respectful contributors. So this is the, the idea of global citizenship uh, and the idea that uh, you know they need to look beyond their own self and to the wider community and what they can contribute positively to wherever they are. So I am 16 year old and I'm a student entrepreneur, innovator and a global citizen. I'm also the youngest entrepreneur to win a startup competition along with $10,000 check at a global platform, which is Jadex Future Stars in Dubai where 800 top startups competed from 75 different countries and participated to compete 
in the Supernova Challenge where I won the Best Gen Z Startup Award. One student contributing positively is Isa Das, a young entrepreneur based in Dubai. While she does not attend the British School of Muscat, she is also passionate about the 21st century skills that Kai mentions. So first of all, can you please introduce yourself, who you are and what you are all about to our listeners, please? So coming down to what I do, honestly, I try to explore everything. Like I want to go on the path to explore all the different kinds of opportunities out there and unleash my full potential. However, in terms of career-wise, I'm the founder and CEO, CEO of Shiro and Inoyo. They both are separate startups. So Shiro is for women, to empower women with personal security. As you know, in the world right now, domestic violence, child predators, these kind of assaults are taking place quite often. And even before COVID, um, Women harassment and assault was one of the top leading crimes in the world. In US alone, every 92 seconds, a person is assaulted. So what Shiro does is we have two separate products. One is a basic and another is an app to empower women with personal security and well-being. The bracelet on just a click of a button can electrocute the attacker and send a GPS alert to the guardian of the user and to the police station. As for the app, many people forget that assault is not just about getting attacked. It's also about living with that fear for your entire life. And that's something which is um, tabooed in the society, which is not to help them, to make them realize that they are not a victim, but they are a survivor. So Shiro has a special feature called Ashinos in the app, which helps them provide and get that personal well-being support by people who already have been a victim of abuse and living their life as a survivor. So with community chats and journals, as well as therapy sessions for very low price, like first three sessions are free and after that it will be $1 per session. So it's a kind of society where women empower women and for the app as well it's called she knows but there's all in that she knows there's he knows as well so something which is very undermined in the society that men do not get abused the fact that every one in nine men do get abused so they have to live with that trauma for the entire life for them also we have that feature in our app to accommodate their feelings and emotion while they stay anonymous and know that they are not alone in the world. How long have you been off school for, Asha? So, um, I went to school in the month of March, March 18th. Mm. Like, our school closed on March 10th. But since I was writing my board exam, GCSEs, I, I had my last exam on 18th. It's a CBSE kind of board exams. Right. So... I gave it on 18th and since then I haven't been actively involved in like studying in school. I'm still waiting to get into my school, uh, which starts in September. Right. So till that time I'm off school. Gosh, that's a long time, isn't it? It is. But in this long time, there's a lot of things one can do. 
but how have you found the transition from your lessons and your time in school to now being and learning all remotely how have you found that it's brilliant honestly like for decades we have been put into this system where we have to wake up at 7 a.m go to a physical school spend 9 hours a day and then come back home exhausted and not being able to do any other co-curricular activities but right now since i'm I, i have taken a bit like i have taken 6 months off from like proper schooling because i'm transitioning from different curriculum so indian curriculum ends on march and british curriculum starts in september so i have this 6 month gap to educate myself in a different way so i'm you i'm going on coursera i'm taking new courses getting finance uh, getting scholarships and just learning different stuff like in school we are subjected to learn in in a traditional curriculum like we have to learn math math system like this or we have to learn a particular sonnet in english and we have to annotate and connotate it but remotely i have the power to explore through the net and take the courses which i want to learn have it customized for my own needs i'm not a brilliant high achieving in like exams i'm more of the average student but re- working remotely learning remotely is allowing me to build my confidence more in the way i'm learning right now So on course here I'm taking this course on uh, AI so I'm by IBM I'm doing a course on how to make chatbot using Watson and it doesn't require any coding using Watson for making chatbots and it's so brilliant to see that like I'm able to build chatbots using Watson which I can potentially use in my app or i can use it on my website for for providing help to youths for mental well-being and support and this is something which i wouldn't have been able to do if if i was still stuck into the uh, 7 a.m to uh, 3 p.m schedule during school time because it doesn't allow me, my body to actually explore the limits so remote learning has been a wonderful opportunity for me personally to explore what is out there on net and how i can build my skills and grow as a person so if i'm having a video call i have to lock myself inside so that they give me some peace of mind <laughs> over in mombasa kenya lena anyango is working to establish these skills in changamwei secondary school With a backdrop of local gangs and absenteeism, Lena has trained and coached more than 200 teachers from nearby schools on ICT skills and is nominated this year for the Global Teacher Prize because of her work in STEM and supporting student opportunity. Here she talks about how it hasn't been easy, but why it is essential. I am Lena Anyango. I am a biology and chemistry teacher and I've been teaching for the last 12 years in high school. I am an advocate of edtech. I've, I've been coaching teachers in various schools and so far I've coached over 200 teachers on how to use technology in their classroom. I'm also a champion of digital literacy in my school because my school is deep inside the slum. 
So most students in my school have very little access to technology. So I've taken it up upon myself to see how I can help them gain some digital literacy skills by having some after-school program with them to teach them some packages of um, Microsoft uh, tools and some Google tools. And other than that, I'm also a champion of girls in STEM because as a biology and chemistry teacher, I'm also a head of science department and realize that very few girls take up physics. So I started a girls in STEM club so that I can always have mentors come to talk to my girls about the importance of doing STEM and that the many job opportunities which are in the STEM field. So I've been, I've been inviting uh, women in science to my school to talk to girls. I've also been bringing mentors who mentor my girls in STEM members to come up with projects, STEM projects, and they go and showcase their projects in, in STEM fairs. So I've seen that with that mentorship and having hands-on activities, the girls have changed their perception towards the STEM subjects and they even made it. So my girls, uh, they, get, they gain the confidence in doing STEM subjects and they even presented their, their projects in competitions and they became the best last year in the country and got a chance to go to South Africa for international fair. Tell us a little bit more about education in your region then. Um, this episode, as I said, is about what matters in EdTech, Middle East and Africa. Um, and what would, yes, you, yes. what would you say are defining characteristics of education where you are? Can you kind of paint a picture for us of what it's like over there? Oh, yes. So in Kenya, we have very many public schools and some few private schools. And when it comes to the field of education technology, the government started um, the aspect of ensuring that teachers integrate technology in their lessons. However, that policy was not received well. Most teachers, um, how can I say it? They, resist, they resisted it or they had some fear towards technology for a very long time. Mm. And that's why I took it. Now, I, I, I think that's, that, that's what motivated me to see how I can support the teachers because it is not about the government policy, but it is enabling the students we have attained to be better citizens when they go out outside there, to acquire these skills so that when they go outside there, they'll fit in this 21st century. So that is one aspect I would like to say that the policy of integrating technology in education, it was met with resistance initially by many teachers during their training as teachers, technology was not part of their training. And then suddenly they were told now you need to integrate technology in your lessons. So they, there was also that lack of how will I do it, the te- lack of technical know-how of how to effectively integrate technology in lessons. So that is about teachers. Now when it comes to the students, I will talk about the lack of access to technology devices. Uh, most primary school students do not have um, any technology devices, apart from some selected schools which were provided with laptops. Um, I think they form like around 15%. Uh, 
of all primary schools in Kenya. So when it comes to high school, most high schools have a computer lab. So if you have a high school of around a population of around 600 students, there is a computer lab which might be having like 20 computers. So that if the student, if the teacher wants to prepare a lesson using the gadgets, the teacher will go to the computer lab. If the teacher has a lesson and would like the, the students to, to use the, the, the laptops, the teacher will take the students to, to the computer lab. So because it is only one in every school, there need to be a timetable. There's a timetable that if I go to the lab today, I might not go until next week. Uh, so that, that is the situation here on the ground. And then most students, they've rarely interacted with technology. So by the time they're joining high school, that's the first time for them to know that this is a mouse, this is a keyboard, we call this a monitor, this is how we type, this is space bar. Yeah, so you, it's like you are starting from scratch. Yeah, That's, that, that's why I, I felt that other than just teaching biology and chemistry, I need to have an after-school program to teach my students those, these skills. How, um, how did the parents react to all this, Lena, all the work that you're doing and all of this um, work around trying to get the kids into technology? What was the reaction from the parents? Yeah, the parents take, took it very positively. Mm. But again, most parents felt that that is part of schooling program. Yeah. They, they didn't see it as as a plus or something above what I'm supposed to do. Mm. And in, in some instances, I would get, uh, I would get volunteers who would like to train some few girls on coding. And in most cases, the venue of training will be far from where the students reside. So in some cases, you'll find that the parents would not be willing to let their, their, their children go for those trainings unless I provide for the students fare or transport to that place. They feel that the, the children are my children. <laughs> that the children are my children. I think even the parents themselves, the parents we are dealing with, they've not appreciated the role of technology in the current world. Mm. And they're seeing that, ah, no, why don't you just teach my children biology and chemistry? Uh, that, is the, that is what is in the curriculum. Why these are the additional things? It, because here the education is, a, is, is um, focused on passing examinations rather yeah. than acquiring these extra skills. Yes. Yeah. I know the very basics in coding. I've, I've tried coding using Scratch. I've coded using Minecraft, just the simplistic coding. Yeah. And I just, I just learned those ones through an organization called um, African Code Week, where they train teachers on how to code so that we can train our students. So I realized that the fact that I don't know coding should not limit my students from learning about coding. Mm -hmm. That's why I've been collaborating mm -hmm. with um, uh, community-based organizations who are working in the field of technology, they usually come to my school and train my girls on coding. They were even trained on basics of web development. And last year, my students were able to make mobile applications, three of them, of solving community problems. Something myself, I don't know. They come to my school, they come to my club, they train the girls, 
and now the girls are getting a lot of confidence in technology. Yeah, so as a teacher, I should not limit my students based on my own limitations. That if I don't know how to code, if I don't know anything about robotics, then I should, then my students should not know it as well. No, I feel that that is the, that is what the future is. The future is in coding. The future is in STEM. And as a teacher, I am I am more than obligated to expose my students as far as I can. Back to Kai in Muscat. What would you say are the defining characteristics of education in the MENA region as you see it? Um, well, I think uh, a bit like I've described here at BSM, I mean, the schools tend to be uh, very international in outlook. Um, many of the international schools, uh, they do have a diverse student populations who come from all over the world. And I think the best of those schools really take that as an opportunity to draw on you know, the international experiences their students have and that they use that to, to energise the, the education that they offer. Um, I, thought, I think also a lot of the schools in the region use the, 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 the regional characteristics, you know, the, the deserts, the mountains, the wadis, the wonderful coastline, and that they also use that to enrich the curriculum along with the you know, specific culture and history that we, ha- we have in this part of the world. And um, all these things create uh, not just international education, but international education, which has some very specific characteristics, uh, which really help to make an innovative and creative experience for us, for our students. Um, and my, my, my own two children arrived in uh, Muscat at the ages of 12 and 16, respectively. And they found that the experience of living and uh, going to school in a different location, in a different part of the world, a different culture, a different climate, that brought a huge amount of perspective and experience to them, which they wouldn't have had if they'd have stayed in uh, our home region of uh, East Sussex. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have a, a lot of contact with businesses and the, and the government within education over there? How, do, how does that relationship work? Yeah, well, we're very fortunate in that we were, we were established in uh, 1973 with a, a royal charter from His Majesty Sultan Qaboos. Um, and that gives us a certain degree of autonomy um, but having said that, we do have a very close working relationship with the Ministry of Education here in Oman. And I know across the region, uh, schools like ours do tend to nurture very close and supportive and constructive relationships with the ministry. Very often because the jurisdictions are maybe smaller than you might find in the UK. Uh, so you, you tend to get to know the officials in the ministry fairly quickly and you tend to meet them fairly frequently and so you do have a lot of opportunity to develop a really constructive partnership with the ministry um, so I think that that's that's quite often the case in in schools right across the region in terms of businesses our Royal Charter um, means that the governing body at BSM uh, is is made up of representatives from companies, the founder companies for whom the school originally served. So we always have at least seven or eight representatives from local businesses uh, 
who then are, are the key members of our board. So, you know, for example, we have uh, governors from Petroleum Development Oman, governors from Shell, from BP, from HSBC. So, you know, so we, we, we have regular contact uh, with these governors and they bring that, that perspective from uh, business in the region. And that's very helpful when you're trying to understand market conditions or the way uh, labor law is affecting the market uh, and that type of thing. And again, speaking to my colleagues across the region, I know for a lot of international schools, they, they do have uh, substantial representation from the local business community on their board. And very often these international schools, you know, the reason that they've been set up is to serve the local business community because without these schools the local business community would find it much harder to attract expatriates to their organizations so so there's normally a, a pretty strong link between international schools and the local business community with with which they serve The foundation was established in 2015 because Abdullah Al-Hurair, a very successful business leader in the UAE, recognized that the quiet giving that he had been engaged in over the last 60 years would not be able to have that larger and more systematic impact without some structure. So he gave a third of his wealth to assure that the foundation would have sustainable funding and reach across the Arab region to empower Emirati and Arab youth through education. So the focus was on critical issues in the education system and the results of the research and the consultation that was done pointed to three core gaps in the education system across the region that we try and address. So the first is unequal access to secondary educational opportunities. The second is limited university counseling in schools and universities. And the third is the skills gap between university graduates and industry needs. Dr. Sonia Ben-Jafar is the CEO of the Abdullah Al-Gharaf Foundation for Education. The foundation focuses on serving refugee populations with access to teaching and learning. Here she talks about the foundation's mission and the role of industry within that. Do you work closely with um, the business sector and professionals in the industry? Um, yes, and more and more, actually, because the focus of the foundation is really to foster opportunities through education for better and elevated livelihoods. The idea was not to just give education for education's sake. We wanted mm -hmm. to give them education with an end goal in mind, and that end goal is to raise themselves up um, out of their situations so that they could... Um, work with their own communities as well and improve their own lives and that of their families. And so that means outreach to corporate partners. And so a lot of the work that we do is actually trying to engage corporates for internship, workplace learning opportunities, and eventually work. Um, and I guess that's part of addressing that skills gap, isn't it? It's so huge at the moment between industry and education. So something it is yeah. it is and it's um and the thing is when when you come from a certain environment where you don't have a professional around you and you don't have a big brother or an uncle who's a professional or who has that kind of um 
way of understanding how universities work. A lot of our um, scholars are first generation mm-hmm. university gro- goers. So that social capital just doesn't exist. How do you write an email? How do you reach out to somebody who you don't know? How do you cold call? How do you build that relationship? And so my team spends a lot of time handholding and teaching that so mm-hmm. that they are that that example and they ensure that they can build that social capital. Our other guests pick up on this theme of social capital. I participate actively in various community uh, initiatives and through those initiatives I've been able to to get to know different professionals in different fields. So that is how I get to know these people and I tell them about the plight of my girls and they agree to come and talk to them. Then I, I, I also know of very many community-based organizations who work in the field of girls in STEM. So those community-based organizations, they are more than willing to come because now they will also be able to have a report back to their donors on what they're doing to support girls. So I've just taken advantage of that, that even though our school is not having the resources, my students can still have access to those resources by my collaboration with other organizations and other uh, experts in field of STEM. Even schools, they have to figure out that are we providing our students for a job seeker or a job provider? Are we making them an engineer or are we making them an HR or like there's so the limitless possibilities or are we making them CEOs or founders or directors? It depends on how students have been exposed with these 21st century skills. And it's essential for every youth in today's world to learn it. Back to Kai. And obviously at the moment we are in the midst of this coronavirus outbreak. How are you managing at the moment? How are your students managing, your colleagues, the parents? How are things working over there at the moment? Well, just to give you a bit of context and how it affects us here. I mean, Mm. we were told as a school on the 14th of March that from the 15th of March, uh, our school had to be closed. So we went from being the school we knew very well and our students and our families knew very well uh, to suddenly having to go onto an an online environment. So that was a a rapid change. And we decided to make the change immediately. So on Saturday afternoon, I think the 14th of March, I spoke to my leadership team and said, right, tomorrow we're going live with online learning. So that was quite a rapid change. We, we had been building up to that for about 18 months. Um, we had a, a new director of IT, Les Johnson, uh, all the way from Australia. Uh, he arrived at BSM in uh, August 2018. And he had a huge challenge as well as an opportunity to really upgrade our IT because it wasn't in a, in a particularly good place. So uh, he's done a huge amount of work in the the last 18 months, improved the infrastructure, uh, launching our school into the world of Google Classroom and the the G Suite world, the cloud-based application. Uh, So by October this year, or early this school year, we gave all our senior school students school Gmail addresses. 
uh, which meant by the time we went into online learning in uh, March, March the 15th, we were set up uh, in such a way that we could sort of effectively flick a switch and suddenly we were online, certainly from a technical perspective. If this had happened two years ago, we, we would have been really struggling yeah. technically. But I think what, 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 we've, what we've found over the last two months is I think we've, we're probably now in our third phase of uh, developing our online learning model. I mean, the, the first phase, I think, was probably from uh, 15th of March through to the spring break. That was a three-week a three week period where we suddenly went online. So the staff were suddenly using Google Classroom. Some of them have had some experience of that. Some had some experience, for example, of making recorded videos. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we did a good job. Um, but what we're doing now is far better than what we were doing in that first phase. Yeah. And what we found that to end of, to, towards the end of that first phase, a number of staff were using recorded video and were having some success with it. Um, and by the time we started the second phase, so after the spring break up until the Eid break, which we're in now, um, those staff who had had initial success with using recorded video were then sharing that practice with other colleagues. And so by the time we were so a, a week into the second phase after the spring break, um, an increasing number of our staff were now using recorded video in very creative ways. And then they started to use other applications like Loom and uh, Showbee and ice cream recorder. And now there's a, a huge range of applications being used across the, 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 the school uh, to enrich the online learning offer. Now, up until this point, we've, uh, for various reasons, safeguarding in particular, uh, and concerns we've had about live conferencing, we haven't used live conferencing. But as we move into our third phase of online learning, sort of after the Eid break till the end of term, which will be the 30th of June, uh, we, are, we are planning a wide range of pilots involving live conferencing right across our 3 to 18 school. So by the time we get to the end of June, I think we'll have, we'll, we'll have had a huge amount of experience in of using live conferencing for a whole range of pastoral activities, also for teaching and learning. And so if we we'd still need to resume online learning in September, and we don't know yet what that will look like, uh, we will be able to ensure that live conferencing is part of our offer uh, next year. So all that's put a huge amount of additional pressure on the staff, um, but it's also been really energising in that there's been an, an enormous upskilling of staff in such a way that I, I've never seen in my 30 years plus in education, the rapid upskilling of staff to use a wide range of edtech applications has been phenomenal. Uh, and so whatever happens going forward, I know that right across my, my, my staff body, everybody is far more skilled than they were two months ago. So that's been brilliant. And the quality, I think what we've also realised, the quality of EdTech provision out there now is absolutely fabulous. So the, the cloud-based applications like um, Microsoft 365, G Suite, these are very powerful and easy to use applications. 
and we didn't we didn't have these applications 15 or 20 years ago so so that that's been really helpful that you know we've now got a whole range of applications that can really support remote learning so that's put pressure on the staff but it's also been very very energizing for them to be go, to be on that learning curve but also it, this way of learning has put huge amount of pressure on families and huge amount of pressure on uh, students um, and as we develop our model and that's one of the reasons we're looking at live conferencing because certainly the students and the and the staff one of the, one of the issues is that if we're not connecting face to face that causes well-being issues for students but also for the staff and I think a lot of families also feel that this way of working puts a huge amount of additional pressure on on their home environment especially if they've got a number of young children and especially if one or both parents are also trying to work at home so as we move forward we're trying to be very mindful of uh, you know that pressure that's at home we need to be mindful of that pressure that's on our students and mindful of the pressure that's also on our staff but you know the quality of the learning that's taking place from age four right up to 18. Some of the learning that's, that's taking place in these challenging circumstances is absolutely inspirational. And uh, what I'm really pleased to see is an increased use of Twitter, in particular from, from our colleagues, to share some of the wonderful examples that the, the, the students are creating in their home, home learning environments. children of your own Nina? yes i have three of them two oh. boys and one girl <laughs> oh you're a busy lady <laughs> yes <laughs> i can hear i can hear them in the background having fun <laughs> and 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 you know in kenya most teachers can only be in a two-bedroomed house so <laughs> oh wow <laughs> And obviously, at the moment, we're in the middle of this coronavirus outbreak. And how has it affected you all? How are you managing in terms of with the students and with the staff that you're working with and also at home? How are you managing everything at the moment? Oh, yes. Yeah. So being a trainer or a coach for teachers in technology, teacher, most teachers were really resisting even being coached. For the training session, some of them would would hide, some of them will say, I have a lesson, I'm very busy, just to avoid me, because they see that I'm bothering them. I'm, okay. I'm, teach, I'm, train, yeah, I'm training them on something which will not lead to an increment in their salary. But thanks to coronavirus, since the, the pandemic started, those the same teachers have been calling me left, right, and center, because they feel like they're being left behind. Some other schools are, are having online sessions and the, those in primary, in public schools are being left behind. So they've been reaching out to me like, Lena, what, what can we do? We have candidates. We, how can we prepare them for exams? The schools have been closed down. So I've really took the situation now to train very many teachers. And one platform I've trained them on is the Google Classroom how to create the Google Classroom, how to invite students, how to give assignments, how to upload materials. Then maybe if you have a, a video on a lesson, how can you upload it on that flat platform? So that is one aspect. 
the other thing is that um, not all teachers have been worried about making ensuring that learning continues. They feel like the schools are closed. Let us meet when the schools reopen. So there's an initiative we started here in Kenya. We are, we are like uh, 60 teachers, uh, 15 teachers in biology, 15 in chemistry, 15 in mathematics, and 15 in physics. So we started an initiative where we came up with a timetable and we've, we've been offering free online Zoom lessons to candidates in Kenya. Free online Zoom lessons. So in, in the first week, we only had 500 students joining. But from the second week, we've been having like 1,200 1, students joining because we were able to get uh, well-wishers who gave us additional links for, for Zoom meetings. Wow. So that is one way we are wow. ensuring that, yeah, we are ensuring that learning continues. So what, what really impressed us with this initiative is that we have those schools, those students who are in the rural areas who do not have the smartphones, they do not have laptops, but we saw them going to a church and in that church there was a laptop and a projector. I think the, 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 the minister of that church uh, agreed to give them their lap, his laptop and projected that. Then they were seated in a church um, with observing social distance and all of them learning from one laptop. There were, there were like 20 students. So we were really touched, like you mean these, these students are really eager to continue learning and maybe they feel left out because of lack of not having the, the gadgets. Yeah, so, that, so that is actually what is happening in my country. For private schools, um, they've been having very smooth uh, online sessions because most of their students have uh, at least a laptop in their households. And most of the teachers in private schools actually have the skills of online teaching. That was amazing about the story about the uh, the church opening up and you know people contributing because it goes back to te teaching is not just you know hopefully a technology platform. It's more than that. It's it's um, it's a place where we can be at the forefront of leading conversation. And one of the conversations we're trying to lead is well. It, is the school is really a school building with four walls where education should happen, or can education happen in a in a different model? And for us, um, what education looks like is where maybe there are shared school spaces, um, not just you know one child goes to one school for a whole academic year. Um, you know there needs to be more, in my opinion, more collaboration maybe between schools and. If you have a school where the space is shared, it can then make sure that whatever we've learned through this COVID experience, we can come out of the learning thinking, okay, there may be a need for a, a blended, more hybrid model, which a lot of people are talking about, not the first one. So I think where we need to move towards is, um, is, a, is in the direction of a, a hybrid model, whereby we have shared school spaces, more collaboration between schools. Um, and if there are parents that are, are really happy with the quality of online learning, then let's not shut that completely down and make sure that we give the opportunity to those parents, to those children who want to have this flexible hybrid model whereby they go into school a couple of days 
uh, and then online for a couple of days. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but that's where I see the future of education going because I'm not sure whether I want Hania to go into school five days a week um, from eight to three and have this rigid timetable um, and then be thrown in a situation where she's at home, like with COVID, and not really know which direction to go in um, or what to do. One of the edtech companies offering support in the MENA region during this time is Teacherly. Atif Mahmood spoke to Sam about their work. Yeah, so my name's Atif, Atif Mahmood, and I'm the founder and CEO of Teacherly. Uh, my background is in, is in teaching, so I used to be a, a classroom teacher, uh, computer science, and then director of technology in the UK. Um, also, I had the opportunity to work in, in Asia for a bit, in Malaysia and Hong Kong before working for Cambridge Assessment, again, within education technology and commercial services. So my passion, my, my love for the, um, for the classroom has never stopped. My kind of passion for using uh, education technology to um, enhance the ability for teachers to do much better, for, for students to have better outcomes has never stopped. So that journey took me from Cambridge Assessment to where I am today um, and starting Teacherly. And Teacherly, it's a, a collaborative lesson planning and the peer-to-peer coaching platform, but really focused in on, on the teaching workforce. Um, what I really wanted to do is think about what's happening in enterprise, uh, the huge surge in productivity and connectivity apps within teamwork. And teamwork within education has been one of the pillars really uh, but but still we get a lot of teachers, if not a majority of teachers in, in schools, working very much in silos. So through Teacherly, what we want to do is try and connect, enable better connection and collaboration between these teams, because there are more teams in, in education than there are in enterprise. So really focusing in on, on the teaching, um, the teaching workforce, really focusing and honing in on on the teams within schools and year groups um, and allowing them to collaborate. But also at the same time, as you know, with, with the podcast that you've done recently that are on your, on your uh, website, professional development is a huge part of, of teaching and learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, with, with professional development, what I've, what I've seen is a lot of it's very much school led instead of teacher led. Um, so again, what we try and do through Teacherly is break fresh and development down. So it's bite-sized videos, bite-sized, bite-sized podcasts that I can consume in 10, 15 minutes that then has an impact on me directly today on my teaching or this week. Uh, and that's what peer-to-peer coaching looks like for us. We are in the Middle East, um, in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, but also in Egypt. Um, so around the UAE and the Middle East. We were looking to launch um, through a quite a couple of conferences in Saudi Arabia. That's not happened due to COVID and we weren't able to take part in those conferences, but we're still doing a soft launch into Saudi. Um, also Qatar, because we're part of the um, Qatar Foundation Wise Accelerator, and they've been very, very active with us in helping us to, to drive um, our platform, but also what we offer in um, in schools in Qatar. Uh, but through the COVID period, uh, we've also um, been able to help schools in Malaysia, in Japan, 
um, in Latin America. And um, we've also done a soft launch in US where we're currently, we, we went to the US in January, February time, uh, part of Global Village VC, which is a, a fund backed by Bill Gates, Reed Hoffman, but a fund that's uh, been co-founded by, co-founded by Anne Duane, who is the Chief Business Officer at Czech. Um, so a great fund that we're part of. And they've helped us just to figure out the market over there in the US because it's a huge market. So we've really, through this period and, and prior to this, we've really gone from the UK um, into a little bit of Europe and then in the Middle East um, and a few other countries that I've just mentioned. And we've just mentioned, obviously, about the, the situation we're in right now and the COVID. Um, do you see any positives that are going to come out of this situation that we're in for our sector? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's it's a really good question and you say positives. You know, I, I already see so much, so much positivity because, again, mm. and the reason why I say that is because I think we have an amazing workforce in the UK, but internationally as well, mm. where teachers are naturally very creative. Um, and if you give them the tools and the time, you know, they, they do adjust. They're very adaptable to the, to the scenario environment they're in, right? Yeah. Um, so, so I've seen a lot of positivity. And I think the biggest takeaway for me is that I think what we will see is a huge uh, number of teachers now being upskilled. Uh, whereas before, I think we may have seen a massive divide in some teachers being very, very, um, having the skills to deliver online lessons, create online lessons, you know, being very tech savvy, those kind of teachers um, who were like the go-to teachers in any school if you had a problem with IT. Whereas I think with the sudden shift from online lessons um, to actually online lessons. A lot of teachers have had to digitize themselves and, and be upskilled themselves. So I think one of the things I've seen is a lot of teachers now being very comfortable in using technology to design interactive lessons, understand a bit more about how um, pedagogy can be applied to online thinking and, and, and teaching. Um, so that's kind of been a huge positive step. The other thing I think it's done to families and I, we don't have any data around this, but I, I honestly see a lot of families coming together and um, a lot of, a lot more parents and families taking more of a, more of a proactive approach in their child's learning. You, do you see what I'm saying? Because they're, yeah. at, they're at home, whereas parents were very busy maybe, or just felt like, you know, I, this is no disrespect to any parents, but maybe, you know, it's the school's responsibility for, for teaching my child because they're there from, you know, eight till three or whatever, whatever every day. But now that they're at home and you have this, um, you have to really be proactive and, and uh, you don't want your child to miss out. So I've also, I also seen, I think, a little bit of uh, togetherness in families in terms of uh, being a bit more proactive in, uh, in their child's learning and understanding a bit more about um, what teachers, I guess, do in schools. Back to Kai again. Short term, um, unfortunately, I think this is going to be short term, is that I think that there, there is greater value uh, being put on schools and on teachers in particular. I think uh, a number of parents are starting to see the challenges of 
of education, the challenges of learning, um, and uh, and I think in the short term there there will be a a greater respect for the work that people do in schools and the challenges of of learning. And unfortunately, I, f- I, f- I fear that might be short-lived. Uh, and I also feel what m- might be short-lived is the, the huge value that we place on connection. Uh, I mean, I've been doing lots of Zoom meetings and like this, uh, conference calls like this over the last two months. And increasingly, I am frustrated with the inability to connect physically with people like yourself and with my board of governors and with the colleagues I work with on the COBIS board and with colleagues across the region who we work with. I think doing Zoom meetings for a while is okay. But but after a period of time, certainly personally, I'm really missing that human connection. And so I think certainly in the, in the short term, we will, when we start to connect again face-to-face, we'll really value and appreciate uh, meeting each other face-to-face again. Now, I, I, I do worry that that might be short-lived. But longer term, um, I think what, we're, what we will see, certainly in the UK and maybe certain parts of the Western, Western world, we will see uh, more people like yourself, Samantha, who will work at least some of the time from home. Yeah. And I think the impact that that will have on education, which was already an increasing dimension, is homeschooling. So over the last 20 years, uh, both in the UK, particularly in the US, there's been a rise in homeschooling. And I think as more people start to work from home, and maybe more countries like New Zealand are considering at the moment move to a four-day week. So maybe there's there's work the work the working week is less dominant. Um, that I think we will see more families thinking that maybe maybe home education is right for my child or for my children at least for a period of their education. So if you couple the home working with now the range of edtech applications that there are to support home learning, if you look at innovations like Harrow Online, where anybody outside the UK can now access Harrow Online, uh, GEMS in certainly the Middle East is developing GEMS Online. Um, Tim Brighouse has been calling uh, for an open school like the Open University to be established in the yeah. UK. As, as, we, as more of these online uh, education platforms develop to support home learning, I think we are going to see an increase uh, in, in, in home learning. And I guess a, a more flexible way of, or more flexible ways of accessing education. So this idea, which has been talked about for at least 20 years, of being able to access education anytime, anywhere, is now... A, a reality and I think you know things uh, so I, I think that what we will see is an increase in homeschooling because for some children that is a better environment for them to learn but whether you're homeschooling or whether you're going to a traditional school I think what what we are seeing uh, is a reminder of however you are learning, whether you're a child at school, whether you're an adult doing an MA or whatever it is, that the importance of community to learning is vital. 
And so even though we might have more children at home learning, they will very often form home learning communities. And I think we've also been reminded that, you know, the importance of school community to the learning process is something which we are all missing at the moment. You know, I've got, like I say, I've got three nieces, um, two amazing daughters, um, two sisters, and my, my other sister, she's actually a, um, a senior professor at Birmingham Uni as well. So, and my other sister is actually a teaching assistant in a, in a school in Manchester. So kind of education is within us. But um, being surrounded by amazing women, my mum, everybody, and even our workforce, um, 60% is, is female. So we promote, we have a, a remote culture within our company. So we're a remote team. We promote flexibility. Um, but if you think about schools and you think about the, 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 the high population of, of teachers are, are female, but if you look at their contracts, there is no flexibility. You know, there is no flexibility. We don't promote the same type of flexibility that me and you enjoy in our you know, enterprise companies that we work in. Um, that, that doesn't exist in education. And I think by having a hybrid model of education or thinking a little bit differently, we can also start thinking about how do we also bring the workforce, the teaching workforce, um, to the same, to the same, I don't know, year as in the same, to the same kind of level as uh, what's happening in other industries where there is flexibility, where if you do have a bereavement, you can take a day off straight away. Yeah. You know, if you do have children and you, you want to come in uh, into work for an hour later and clock off an hour later, you can do that, right? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That doesn't yeah. exist in, the, in, in, the, in, in education. And I think, I think we need to be better at uh, promoting flexibility uh, yeah. and flexible working for, for teachers. Many of the Abdullah al Gharar Foundation for Education programmes seek to develop these communities and limit the damage of a fast-growing digital divide. And so, for example, we learn from providing almost 250 students with, in the region with scholarships to complete degrees and micro-credentials with MIT and Arizona State University. We have been and continue to work with regional universities to build their capacities in online and blended learning so that they can improve their teaching and learning and making their institutions more accessible online. In fact, we worked with the American University of Beirut in Lebanon and the American University of Cairo in Egypt. And I think that working with those two institutions have, has moved the needle on it. And now more recently, our knowledge and support is being invited and welcomed amongst the higher education community in the UAE, where we're trying to help move to high quality online education as a large scale solution locally. And that has long-term implications that this urgent distance learning, you know, response period doesn't necessarily consider yet. And so we're really excited that the universities locally are looking forward that way. And then the other one that I wanted to talk to you about was our Young Thinkers program, because it is so unique. And currently, we have over 13,000 users registered on it. It's a platform. And it is in high demand by multiple stakeholders in the region, because it simply fills a critical gap in the region. 
this gap where they don't have post-secondary counseling for careers or universities. And it's fully online, it's free, it's in Arabic, and it's in English. So YTP is essentially a college and career readiness platform, but I like to call it a life readiness platform. (laughs) It's completely accessible. What's nice about it is one piece of it is a picture-based psychometric assessment that offers insights on how a young person's interests can connect to careers of the future and university or technical degrees using an algorithm based on their responses. So it's a great conversation starter. It offers short soft skill courses, uh, college and career planning, time management, communication, public speaking, those pieces. And finally, for our Emirati youth, it connects them to expert success coaches for one-on-one chats. And so we've actually been able to reach a 13,000 registered users since our launch in October 2018. So the growth has been quite quick. And again, the reason our growth is quite quick is because we don't do it alone. The reality is we use our solutions to serve the community. So we need those community actors to be able to serve appropriately and at scale. And a key partner for YTP is the Ministry of Human Resources and Emeritization. They have been collaborating with the foundation since the inception of this program. And in terms of our outreach outside the UAE, it's quite organic too. We just signed an MOU with one of the largest foundations in Egypt that serves Egypt's most underprivileged communities to assure that YTP is available to those who need it most. And we can't get to those people. We, we don't know where they are. That's why it's so important to work with foundations and NGOs of this nature and governments. So we're really excited about how well this is being picked up and because what it says to us is that it's filling a need. Just coming back to the Refugee Education Fund, how does technology play a role within that? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. His Excellency is adamant that blended technology programs and innovations as some of the vehicles can achieve a great reach. And one example that pops to mind is the Abdulaziz Al-Harir Advanced Computing at Luminous, who adopted a career-focused education program. So what happened there is we enabled 200 refugees and vulnerable youth access to software development and software engineering courses taught by Coding Fellows Seattle. And it was through immersive trainings to meet industry needs and improve diversity careers. What's exciting about that is the graduate demand that some of them have already gained employment contracts during the pandemic crisis with a salary of four times the average wage. We're currently supporting 2,700 refugee communities to access online courses and program that lead to elevated livelihoods in the same kind of model. So you know, those are kinds of the things that were already happening. Now, since the COVID-19 lockdown, been, um, there's definitely been more attention given to that space, that online learning space. So we've been working with our grantees in Lebanon and Jordan to repurpose the funds that they already had allocated and enable them to listen to online learning modalities. And that was important because we already have over 17,000 youth that we serve in the Refugee Education Fund, and we didn't want them to lose their opportunity. So it was important for us to really push that agenda 
And then in addition, His Excellency announced the Abdulaziz Al-Harir COVID-19 Online Learning Fund for Refugee Education, which aims to reach an additional 6,000 students in Jordan and Lebanon who are further marginalized by the digital divide. So if you look at it, it's a crisis within a crisis because they don't have access to internet and devices. And if we move all education into that space, what happens to them? And so this fund tries to address that so that we can effectively engage them in learning during the crisis through online learning opportunities and quality education. And community is often essential in accessing the best technology has to offer. Do you think that we are going to learn some lessons from this coronavirus and this isolation for the better? Do you think they're going to go back to normal after all of this in schools and education? Or do you feel that we're going to learn and grow and and make change? Yes, I I believe that we're not going to go back to normal. One thing is that I, I can see that once we resume, I think the government will rethink about the, the resources allocated to education technology. Because more than ever, this uh, pandemic has highlighted the education inequalities we've always been talking about. That some schools are more resourced than others. Some students are having more access to quality education than others. And this is the best time for us to appreciate this reality. And I have a feeling that should we resume the government might rethink on allocation of resources to educational technology and even uh, training of teachers in terms of how best to integrate technology in in their process of teaching and learning. And what I also appreciate is that this lockdown has given teachers time to rethink on their professional development and look at their relevance. Because assuming that this thing stays forever and schools are closed forever and you are a teacher who does not have any skill of uh, remote teaching and learning, then you automatically you become irrelevant. Okay? So I, I feel that this post-corona will have teachers who will be having more confidence in use of technology. Teachers would appreciate more why they should learn and acquire skills in uh, education technology and the government would rethink on how they will they relocate resources uh, to different schools so that not only resources but even when it comes to penetration of internet because uh, during these online sessions we've, we've seen areas where internet is not av- available so i think even the government will look at the, at at those those uh, dynamics and with that things will never be the same again just the last thing for me is, yeah. to be honest, it's the word curriculum and assessment. <laughs> you know, honestly, I just, you, know, you think about the word curriculum and assessment, it's existed for years and years and years. And I, and I sometimes struggle to even understand what it means. So my friend, Stephen Cox, runs an amazing, he's a chief education officer at, uh, at, a, at a company called the New Nordic School. You may have heard of it, I don't know. Mm, yeah. From Finland. And they've got this amazing curriculum that they're developing. And I, I just think there needs to be yeah, a lot more around, especially in the UK. You know, I, I love I love the teachers in the UK and I, I do feel at times, you know, we're kind of being shown into um, this, this box where we've got this curriculum, these learning objectives, 
It's all about tests. It's all about assessment. And I just hope through COVID and post-COVID, you know, we can just sit back and just think about, you know, really like what is curriculum? What is assessment? How should we be assessing us, our children? You know, what is important? Um, because I think there needs to be a, a wider conversation around um, assessment and curriculum. Mm-hmm. And I think um, there are some better, more amazing people placed to have that discussion. But from my point of view, you know, I, I see it with Haraya, with Hania. I, 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 I'm not sure <laughs> what formative assessment is and how, how Haraya, especially who's eight, has been uh, assessed remotely. Um, and I just think it needs to change. If you, and I hope that, that kind of makes a little bit of sense. And same thing with curriculum, you know. Everything seems to be around content and knowledge and, and not really skills based. And if we're not careful, you know, uh, we'll get another Eric, like the Google CEO, when he came down in 2005 or four, whatever it was, and said, you know, you've got a problem around computer science recruitment. And, you know, not one government so far has hit the number of teachers that we need in computer science. And we're still in the same place, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we're not too careful, will drive out all the amazing teachers that are coming into the profession because everything's about knowledge and you know, kind of content-based and content consumption instead of really developing and nurturing skills that um, so many of us need for, for the future. Back to Kai and our other guests to end with some people, places and projects to be inspired by. Okay. Um, well, I think I'm inspired by th- three people. Uh, in particular that I've had the privilege and the pleasure to work with. Um, So Sue Williamson, uh, she's currently the CEO of SSAT and I I work with Sue and Professor David Hargreaves between uh, 2004 to about 2010 in the UK when I was SSAT and both Sue and David had a huge impact on the way I think about education and in particular, the way I think about educational innovation. Um, so I learned a huge amount from Sue and David, and I'm still in contact with both of them. So they, they've had a, a, a substantial impact on how I think about educational innovation. And so I was delighted in our recent BSA inspection report, uh, that's British Schools Overseas Inspection Report, from January early this year, where, where the first strength that's mentioned is in that report is that the spirit of innovation and creativity runs throughout the school. And that is largely down to the influence of Sue and David on my thinking. Um, The other person who who continually uh, influences the way I think about teaching and learning is Professor Dylan William, who again I had the privilege to work with for a few years when I was at SSAT, obviously all the work he was doing on formative assessment. And what I really like about Dylan's work is that, number one, he's been a classroom teacher for some years, and he really understands what it means to be a teacher. And it's, you know, it is a tough job. It's a very rewarding job, but it's tough. Uh, but he really understands teaching and learning. But also, he is very practical in what he advocates, and the practical strategies that he suggests are underpinned by a huge amount of research and the way he uses research to justify the practices that he advocates, I think is really inspiring. And it's a consistent message 
from Delnor, consistent messages. And he really has helped me shape my thinking about what matters in the, in the classroom. So Dylan William and Professor David Hargreaves, both professors who have had a really impact on me. In terms of reading, one book I keep going back to as a leader uh, is a book that was published in the early noughties by a chap called Jim, Jim Collins, Good to Great. And there are ideas in there, again, based on extensive research, which continually influence me as a leader. And one of those, for example, is facing up to the brutal facts. And, uh, and my staff use that language when they're talking with me on a fairly regular basis now, because however good we think we might be as leaders, as teachers, as organisations, there are always some brutal facts that we need to face up to if we're going to get even better. And that could be painful at times, very painful at times. But if we're not prepared to face up to the brutal facts and l listen to what our students are telling us or our colleagues are telling us or our parents are telling us, and if we're not receptive to listen to those messages, then we, we won't become even better teachers or even better leaders or even better schools. So that's one of the many sort of nuggets of, of leadership philosophy that I, I take from, from that book, Good to Great. I think it's a, a fantastic read and probably every day there are um, instances where that thinking in that book is influencing how I operate as a leader. I love that line. Always, uh, there are always brutal facts we need to face up to to get better. I think that just counts in life in general, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. That's right, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, but it can be very uncomfortable. Yeah, that yeah. can be very uncomfortable. And it's, it's easier not to face up to them. It's easier to, the, to, to, it's easier to read, read the, the positive things and, and the, you know, the compliments than to address the, the things which are really grating with colleagues or students or parents. But I mean, the, the reason that we've been able to improve uh, BSM to where it is now is because I've continually encouraged my colleagues to do that. And I've also, they've encouraged me to do that. You know, we do annual parent surveys and staff surveys. And, and, you know, for me, one of the big things about being a leader is being prepared to genuinely and authentically listen to people right across the community. I think it's a really important, important part of leadership. Um, and, and, it, and if you do listen and think and reflect on what people are telling you, then I think, yes, that can be difficult at times, but ultimately it helps you create a better school for your students. I'll give a couple of recommendations, but it's not in like a highly order. One values, one is more valued than the other. But in, if, speaking of people, in terms of entrepreneur, there's Peter Demandis. He's a great entrepreneur. He has this moonshot thinking mindset, which enables students to think about the global grand challenges, which is beautiful. And everyone should look into uh, his life and what he does. Then there's uh, other, other entrepreneur. His, uh, her name is Raya Bichari. She's a founder and CEO of, uh, of Academy. So, so her mission towards helping students uh, like customize learning in the way they want to is brilliant. And another, like there's also 
Karandeep. He is my mentor and he taught me the basics of business and how I can, how I should pitch my idea. And, and he enabled me to have this kind of confidence in myself that, okay, whatever I speak, I speak with confidence and no one is judging me out there. So he's also there. And um, also, this is something which all the youth have to find in order to get, in order to be um, growing and having their fulfillment of, in life is making your parents as your ideal. My mom, my dad, as uh, something I adore to be in the future. My mom helped me in my lows. She, I, I'm, while growing up, I was di- diagnosed with dyslexia. So with spellings and numbers changing all around, like the notebook, I was never able to even speak out for myself in the class. Said, okay, mom, I don't know this formula. Can you explain it to me? But it was my mom who helped me not to take dyslexia as my weakness, but to embrace it as my strength. So my mom has been a game changer. She has, she's a blessing in my life. So like all the students out there listening to this podcast, idealize your parents, see the good in them and make them your mentor and then find mentors for yourself. Um, I would say that I'm most definitely inspired by our scholars who mm. are incredible people. Um, I can give you an example of mm. Um Kalthum from UAE. She pursued her online master's degree in science delivery alongside her job as a nurse in the UAE. She maintained a 3.9 GPA while working And she was still in the program when she was recognized and promoted to unit manager with the UAE Ministry of Health and Prevention. And she did all of this while managing to have her first child work and study online. Um, My board and my chairman are quite dedicated and give us continual attention. And what's nice about that is that they're very experienced business people. And so they see the landscape differently and will help give us tips or directions or resources in terms of thinking or people, network. And that's really inspirational because, again, they don't have the time to do that, but they still make time to do that because they believe in this. And so that really, um, you know, I'm, I'm literally surrounded by people who care that deeply about it. And that's something that I enjoy working in that environment. Um, when I think about books, I, I really didn't know how to answer this question. So I went on my audible because I listen to books (laughs) more than I do anything else. I said, okay, I'm just going to take the last kind of four that I've listened to since I started my new role. And it's, we are displaced edited by Malala Yousafzai, um, giving done right by Philip Buchanan, running for my life by Lopez Lamong and, um, Factfulness by Hans Rosling. And so you could see that I kind of like the books that have to do with um, really how do you you make this world a better, how does one story change that of many and how, what's your role in, in, in making that difference? And then when I tried to think of something that really influenced the work I was doing, I would have to say David Miliband's TED Talk, The Refugee Crisis, is the test of our character um, because I think that this is also a test of our character. This is not about saving others. It's about saving our own humanity. And he does an amazing job of really driving the point across that um, until you see the others as 
you and part of your family mm-hmm. that we're not going to evolve as a people and mm-hmm. find our own humanity. So mm-hmm. that kind of guides my thinking. Our team is made up of previous educators. Joy Buchner is our head of customer success and her background is in teaching and learning with GEMS Education. Ashna is, um, has a degree from Brighton Uni in education. Um, Zoe, her mum and dad are both teachers and she's our community manager. Um, Joanne, she's head of global marketing and she's a parent. There's a great book called The Mom Test, which is um, spelled American M-O-M, The Mom Test. And it's all about customer conversations and that's a, a really good book. The other book I would recommend is somebody who recommended it to me, um, an amazing mentor and investor, Kunal. Um, and it's a, a book called uh, Principles by Ray Dalio. And again, it's about principles in life, but in business. And it's just a, a really nice book, uh, which I read twice now. Um, uh, so they're the two books I would recommend. What inspires me? Yeah. What kind of books do you read? What people do you look to who inspire you or your students even? Oh, yes. Uh, there's a book I read called um, <laughs> the, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. <laughs> <laughs> And the reason why I like that book is that when I looked at the habit number two, begin with the end in mind, you realize that once you stand out from the others, you are likely to meet obstacles and challenges. You're likely to meet people who will bring you down. People will make you feel like, no, this is not going to work. But if you begin with the end in mind, that before you begin anything, look at the end product. What do you want to achieve? then you'll stay on course, no matter the challenges, no matter the obstacles. So that is what has been my, my, that is what has been giving me the drive to push on. Anytime I meet a challenge, I ask myself, why did I start doing this in the first place? Okay, if I started to please people and people are not pleased, then I'll, I'll stop. But if I started to change somebody else's life, then I'll have all the strength to do the end. I love that. That's. I feel like I want to take that and put it on my wall and read it to myself every day. <laughs> feel free. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Thank you, Lina. Um, it's really inspiring to talk to you, Lina. Thank you for your time. Welcome, welcome. Anytime. Thank you, Lina. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Say hi to your daughter. I will, and yours as well. <laughs> okay, okay. Bye. Good. Have Take a good care. Day. Bye. Bye. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for listening in and huge thank you to all of my guests and Bet for supporting this second What Matters in an EdTech series and Teacherly for supporting this episode. To continue the conversation online, use the hashtag EdTechPodcast and BetMina or go to the Twitter account at PodcastEdTech or at Bet underscore show on all the social medias. Or for all the show notes, it's www.theedtechpodcast.com and for more content, check out the BetMina website where you can find out about how to stay connected with the community. Have a great week, stay safe and goodbye. Bye-bye.